Thank you for listening to The World in Words on Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit us at PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media. Hi, today a conversation about human culture, tribalism, and language. Mark Pagel has written a book called Wired for Culture, The Natural History of Human Cooperation. And his thing with this book is that culture and how we disseminate it to other human beings, that is what actually makes us human. It is what sets us apart from other species. And it has allowed us to occupy, to voraciously occupy the planet. We'll hear in a minute how language fits in, but consider first animals, all animals aside from human beings. A lot of them have evolved for any number of different reasons. It could be because new predators have entered their environment or perhaps because the climate has changed. But that evolution takes a long, long time. Humans, though, are different. And this is Pagel's starting point. He says that we humans, we figured out, oh, about 150, 200,000 years ago, we figured out how to adapt, not evolve, like losing a tail or something, which takes a really, really long time, but to adapt, which can be a far quicker process. And we've adapted by sharing information, passing it on from one generation to the next. That stream of information, or those many streams of information, because we're tribal and sometimes we don't share information outside the tribe, those streams of information are what Pagel calls our human cultures. We're talking here about ideas and knowledge and technology and skills. And because we're able to retain all of that and transmit the culture down the generations, we then had the ability to adapt to various environments around the world and survive in those places. You know, we figured out new ways of acquiring food or building shelter or designing clothes. So we could occupy most places on Earth. (laughs) Designing clothes doesn't quite sound right, but you know what I mean. All this meant that we achieved what no other animal could do. We escaped the predetermined limitations of our genes, or at least we think we have. I don't know if Pagel gets into whether we've taken our adaptive abilities too far or or whether we believe in them too much, whether we've flown just a little too close to the sun. In any case, this information flow, this human culture, is, as, as far as Mark Pagel is concerned, it's the most potent trait that we possess to ensure the propagation of the species. We adapt to the new land. We turn it into something that we consider productive, somewhere we can live. And that means that more people can thrive and the population can grow. But of course, there's a rub to all of this brave new human growth talk. Why did humans, who were otherwise so efficient from an evolutionary perspective, why did they develop such inefficient means of communication? Why did they develop hundreds, no, thousands of mutually incomprehensible languages? This is what Pagel, who's a biologist, this is what he studies at a place called the Evolution Laboratory at the University of Reading in Britain. He looks at things like family dynamics and tribal dynamics right at the beginning of human history. What follows is a conversation with Mark Pagel that takes on these seemingly contradictory ideas. You'll hear several people chiming in with their thoughts, often incredibly disparate thoughts on, for example, on taxi drivers or the European Union or the rise of the novel or artificial intelligence. 
I kind of like that. I also like the way that language underpins so much of this discussion. The three other people at the table are Antonia Byatt, also known as A.S. Byatt, the novelist, Irish fiction writer and essayist Colm Tobin, and yet another novelist, Will Eaves. Asking the questions of Mark Pagel is the BBC's Andrew Marr. Here he is. Fascinatingly, you point out right at the beginning of the book that even now in our homogenized, globalized world, we have 7,000 mutually unintelligible uh, communication systems or languages in human culture. And you ask why that could pop, why that should be. Why have we so many? Because as you point out, gorillas don't have, um, we don't think, <laughs> thousands of different languages to communicate. It's an extraordinary statistic. I mean, we're, we're the only species, and we think of ourselves as the most intelligent species on the planet, but we're a species in which we can't communicate with other members of our own species. And that's a bizarre situation. No other animal is like that. You pick a gorilla up and pluck it down anywhere else on Earth where gorillas are found, and it will know what to do, know how to speak, and so on. But we don't. And the idea is that as we expanded out of Africa, maybe 60 or 70,000 years ago, and occupied the world, it seems we had a predilection to do so in small tribal societies that really, in many ways, are like extensions of our families. We treat the other members of those societies like honorary relatives. And, and this group, shall we say 300 or 400 people, wherever it might be, has to be big enough so that it's, you're, you're not going to get into all the genetic problems of incest. I mean, mm. you've got to have family groups that can connect to each other. Um, uh, uh, but also has to have a bit of um, specialization so different people can do different things, and that's what makes it effective. Yes? It, indeed it is. I mean, our, these, these small tribal societies were probably just large enough that there was a range of talents and skills and wisdom, you know, so diversity of things that people could do. And the idea is that when you're confined just to a, a family group, a biological family, sad to say there probably just isn't the range of talents and skills. And so what humans have been able to do in these kind of tribal societies is have a kind of collective intelligence by working out the psychology to share our individual wisdom and talents and knowledge. But for the, for the tribe to bond, they have to have sort of strong bonding mechanisms. We're all the people with blue noses and red feathers in our hair. And that means that, in a sense, they have to be xenophobic or hostile to the next tribe. Because, yes, you, you need, because without the, the strong internal bond, you don't have the... it won't work. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, this is one of the, the sort of paradoxes of our species, is that we're, we're, we're capable of greater sort of kindness and generosity than any other species on the planet, but we're also capable of extraordinary cruelty. And it seems that these small tribal societies were, were of such potency that they were something worth protecting. And they were also something worth joining, a bandwagon worth jumping onto. And, and this, is, this is why we deliberately create differences between ourselves of language or tartan or football um, allegiance or whatever it might be. We do. These are all ways of identifying who's a member of our tribe or sort of extended family and who isn't. And so we do these bizarre things like wear silly matching shirts to sporting events or paint our faces in the colors of our national flag. And you can see that psychologically we're, we're sort of indistinguishable from our tribe. Our tribe really is just a part of our family. Antonia. Um, cities like Bradford are now largely Asian cities, but they speak my language. I'm a Yorkshire woman, and I go up there, and the taxi driver looks very Asian, and he begins to speak to me in Yorkshire, and I, that's my culture. I'm all right with it. That's, I think, how the cultures mix and separate. So, so tribal identities can be very complicated. Very complicated, and they can shift. Um, Mark, I was, uh, <clears throat> what you're suggesting here is that almost nationalism 
or some idea of what Antonio is talking about, being from a place rather than a family, or as well as a family, is hardwired into us, is almost genetically there. And this strikes me as really interesting if you're trying to make people love Europe. And even though in countries like Spain and Ireland, where Europe has been so important in the modernization process, has really helped people in their lives, mm. nobody loves Europe. Yeah. And when Europe says, no, we must all be Europeans, we feel Europeans, people snort and snigger and, and do worse. Yes. And so the failure of Europe to make Europeans feel European um, is, is really interesting in this context that people feel a part of their family genetically, People, and you're saying people feel part of their tribe almost genetically, but to try and impose another one on people just because it suits them or just because they should doesn't actually work for people. Well, no, it's extraordinary. I mean, this psychology we have of being able to include people in our tribe who aren't related to us, so they're not just biological family members, seems to be very fluid in the sense that we have these large units now. I mean, our evolution is maybe in groups of 250 or 350 or 400 or 500, but now we all live in Britain and we have a British identity, or there are 300 million people living in America who call themselves Americans. Or Muslims. I mean, look at, look at the number of Muslims yes. in the world today, and billions. So I think Antonia hit it on the head. It's just that what, what we do is we look for clues or cues of tribal relatedness. And so Antonia is saying she feels quite happy to hop into a taxi, maybe in Bradford or something, so long as somebody has the right accent. as a sort of cue of social and tribal relatedness. But this is all sounding yeah. quite cosy. Mm. But isn't the, the corollary of that is that we have to, as it were, evolutionarily dislike and fear and suspect people of other tribes. Well, yes, the flip side of our psychology is that we've been such a successful species around the world, we will have always found ourselves in competition with other groups like our own for, for lands and resources. And so what this has meant is that we've had to develop a psychology that allows us to treat people within our own group with high morality, but that morality can just leak away instantly when it's someone from another group. And so we've probably evolved dispositions that allow us to drop our sort of moral stance when it comes to somebody mm. from another tribe. And we've seen that we can dispatch them with, you know, with, with great cruelty. That is true, but is it not also the case that um, conflict can be cooperation at a later date in, in disguise? And that this is also a kind of driver of evolutionary progress and increased socialization and expansion of the tribe? It's one of the most, it's one of the most uh, surprising things, is that conflict is this continual source of creativity for people looking for ways to cooperate. Because it's frequently the case that sort of endless cycles of betrayal and revenge have fewer returns to individuals than just throwing down your arms and, and cooperating. And what Colin was referring to, like the European project, this is an attempt to knit together people who were formerly competing entities, hoping that we can, we can end these cycles of betrayal and revenge. So uh, I suppose the, the really big question out of all of this is, is there progress in the sense that you move from a small tribe to a bigger tribe to a nation to, you know, the European Union until there are no tribes left at all and we're all one big happy family? Or is that uh, Im impossible given the 7,000 languages and given the persistence of group identity and, and, and hostility between groups? The simple answer is it's going to be a bumpy road, but what I call the 80,000-year triumph of cooperation is that 80,000 years ago, the world was full of little hunter-gatherer societies of 250 to 500 people. We call them bands, and those bands gave way to tribes that were just bands of bands, and tribes gave way to chiefdoms as tribes came together and cooperated. 
and chiefdoms gave way to nation states, and nation states then yes. gave way to these supranational organizations. And this and is this is, sorry. This is all kind of intraspecies in a way. It's about our cooperation and conflict within ourselves. Mm. The interesting thing is what happens when um, the population balance tips. There's a cataclysm of some sort, and much further down the road, you know, we either die out as any sort of look at deep time tells us we surely will, or there's a competition with another species and the other species wins. And I'm thinking here actually of artificial intelligence and what might happen if a biomechanoid consciousness arrives. What will happen to us then? Will we cooperate or won't we? Yes, well, I I think one of the things we have to bear in mind is that our our culture has evolved to be very greedy. There are strategies for survival. And so what's going to happen is that as we continue to evolve and we develop all of these mechanisms for helping us survive and populate the world, something like an electronic intelligence could arise. But I'm, I'm not one of these people who thinks the machines are going to take over. I think we're firmly in control. Um, it's, as I say, it's going to be a bumpy ride, but I think, I think we're going to retain control. There's going to be worse conflicts, I think, than that. Last time we met another species or another group, uh, the Neanderthals, it didn't end well for them, I remember. It didn't end well <laughs> no, at all. No. It didn't end well at all. Um, just as a novelist, I'm wondering about that idea of, of tribalism. Of, for example, um, how do you view then someone from Russia arriving in London and being alone in London and not being a Londoner and someone, or someone Irish going to Boston? You know, yeah. th- those, those first years yeah. of somebody moving out of their tribe, if you say the tribe is so essential and so historically determined... Absolutely. I just wanted to jump in there. Could it be that this early phase of the novel coincides with a period in, in, in human development where the tribes are expanding, where people have to break out of their tribes and yeah, their groups? Yeah, where things are becoming more fluid. Yeah, story, really. yeah, yeah, yeah. Where things, people can move, Isabel Archer can move from, from America and to England. And the Germans didn't have novels for a long time in the way the French and the English did, precisely because they lived in cities which were enclosed by walls, surrounded by a forest, and they didn't need this cross-cultural communication. I wanted to say there's a wonderful book by Stephen Pinker which charts the disappearance of violence from human societies. Yes. He's got some amazing statistics about how much less we actually kill each other and slaughter each other. Because hunter-gatherer groups were at war with each other all the time, as your book points out. Almost constantly constant battles. And I think to answer Colm's question, I mean, the, the Russian showing up in London or whatever, I, in my book I say it's a little bit like being at a party where nobody knows you. And I think, you, you know, your discussion of Beckett and Beckett sort of, you know, you know throwing off his Irish background. Just annou- um, announcing that it's over, pretty much. And his yeah, language. Yeah, yeah. And, and you describe yeah. it as a, sort of, as a sort of form, well, in, in, in terms of Hugo Hamilton's, as form, a form of sort of parasite, but it's this kind of culture aside. And I imagine that was a real struggle for those writers, that, that they then had to adopt the mannerisms, the dialects, and so on. And very nourishing for them in other and, ways. And very nourishing. It opened that up, forced yeah. them into, into a style yeah. which, they, which, which, they wouldn't, which they wouldn't have done had they stayed home. Yeah. There's yeah. A, a lot of work on um, people who, at the Second World War, had to emigrate. Um, writers and artists who had to go to America, and all the psychoanalysts, were turned out. And... There's an enormous difference between the way in which some of them manage to create societies and even become in charge of those societies, like, say, Melanie Klein, mm. and sort of lost artists like George Gross wandering the streets of New York, not quite sure who he was yeah. or Unable who to he reconnect. could talk to. And, and musicians, too, you know, that are moving to America, and some of them sort of, you know, making an identity for themselves in Hollywood and others actually going by the board. That's the novelist Will Eaves ending that discussion on 
well, just about anything you could cram into 15 minutes. I'll post links to Mark Pagel's work, the others too, at theworld.org slash language. Other places you can take in the pod and any discussions around it are on Facebook. There's a World in Words page. Also, Twitter, where I tweet under the name Patricox, P-A-T-R-I-C-O-X. See you next time.